Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute Podcast. This week, we are happy to welcome back Dr. James F. Richardson, founder of Premium Growth Solutions and author of Ramping Your Brand. We'll be taking a look at the kind acquisition by Mars and what that might mean for mergers and acquisitions in the space in the coming months and years. But first, whether you are a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us to expand our reach, and we appreciate it when you do so. And I should also note that we're now available on Spotify and Apple, so take a look for us there too. So with that all said, I'll introduce James and start off by asking how he's doing today. So how are you, James? I am doing great, considering all the craziness we're all dealing with. Well, that's about all you can ask for these <laughs> days, I would say. Uh, and I want to thank you again for joining us. You know, you already spoke with Brian Choi about your book a couple months ago, so we do appreciate you coming back. But for those who might not be familiar, could you give a brief background about yourself, uh, your book, and also Premium Growth Solutions? Sure, Chris. So I am a cultural anthropologist turned business strategist for early stage consumer brands. I work in food, beverage, beauty, personal care, anything sold at Target. Um, so, And I wrote a book basically just at the tail end of last year called Ramping Your Brand, which uh, my former employer, the Hartman Group, graciously allowed me to release some um, really interesting uh, material we did from some internal studies. That material is a basically best practices on how to exponentially grow brands from zero to the $100 million mark. But we're going to talk about post $100 million a lot very shortly. Indeed we are. So I think we can kind of jump into the big news of the week, and that is Kind being acquired by Mars. So I'd like to know, what was your initial reaction when you saw that news? Well, about time. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how much more revenue did they need? Poor Dan wants to retire. Uh, that was <laughs> so, give the guy a break. No, I think most of us in the industry knew that once you know, once you sign that late in the game, once you sign a global distribution-driven minority investment with a big strategic, that it's pretty much a fait accompli, as they say. Wasn't surprised at all. Um, but we're also distracted that it, I had forgotten about it completely. <laughs> so. It is hard to fight for the headlines these days, and that's for sure. Um, so I guess where we could start is, what do you think is the biggest takeaway a private emerging brand might learn from this deal? Let's frame it as, you know, you're the founder of said emerging brand. You know, my experience post-acquisition in big companies for over a decade prior to doing what I do now would suggest that if you're a founder who deeply, deeply cares about protecting your brand from dilution of almost everything related to the product, um, from deceleration or from just devolution and, and mismanagement. Uh, on the long term, uh, you really want to find a way to stay independent deep into the nine figures the way that Dan did. The problem with that, so that's my biggest takeaway, the problem is, Chris, that that, that requires a degree of professionalism on the part of the operating team, and I'm team is the operative word, that will allow it to be independent for years. And that is rare to be quite honest. And if you flip the script, what do you think a large CPG company could learn from this acquisition? Should they be afraid now? <laughs> no, I mean, no, no. The, pro the private equity ecosystem is way too entrenched in the, their investment banking system and strategic. So, or they form such a tight ecosystem that there's always going to be lower mid-market and mid-market acquisitions. I mean, that's never going to stop. And that's because the people involved in the LPs on Wall Street are highly incentivized to keep that deal flow going. So I don't think that's going to stop. Um, but I think if you're a CPG company, if you really want to be smart, if you want to be Pepsi, Coca-Cola smart, 
right, in the world of CPG, then you need to focus on investing in skate ramp brands early, not crazy early, but early. Um, and you need to focus on the ones that are run by highly professional operating teams that don't rely on a hero founder's CEO. Now, you're probably saying, what? what are you talking about? Dan Lebetsky, I mean, he wrote a book, he's got a PR machine. That's for his foundation, though. It's not for his brand. Consumers don't care about Dan Lebetsky. Most people who eat Kind Bar have never heard his name. Right? So, so we, don't, we, don't want to cons- we don't want to confuse his massive PR machine for his foundation with how important Dan Lebetsky is, uh, either day-to-day in the business or to consumers. Nobody cares. And I think he, if he was on this podcast right now, he'd totally agree. Because Dan is, uh, he's the antithesis of, to me, when I just watch from afar. And I've talked to a lot of kind alumni. I have other sources, too, on what goes on there. And, you know, the entire culture of that company, uh, it had a magical operating culture in which there was no need for some charismatic sort of, I don't know, stereotypical guru at the top. In other words, if Dan had gone into a coma for like nine months at any point in the last 10 years, I don't know that there would have been a big problem at all. Because he had a, he had an organic culture set up in which people were so motivated, so into this. They were hired for that, but they were also turned into that. That is the culture of an emerging brand that can take you to a billion dollars without much trouble. The problem is, Chris, that's very, very, it's actually really hard to find. When I, I work with a lot of early stage companies, I would say that, you know, the faster they grow, the more unstable they are in terms of their operating culture internally. Like the less gelled it is. So the pump and dump exits we've seen, you know, are great examples of totally screwed up organizational cultures. And they blew up post-acquisition. Almost every one of them. Now, so, um, and that's something that if you work on post-acquisition side, you can see that from inside strategics, live in person. <laughs> but what Dan built was this amazing, I mean, it sounds so little humanities, liberal arts cliche, but, you know, Dan's a management consultant. So, you know, and he said this publicly, so I'm going to parrot it back as a social scientist. Dan isn't critical to Kindbar's rise, except for the initial inception period. It's his team and the culture, irrespective of the individuals in roles, it's the culture he created that got it to a billion dollars. He was instrumental in creating that culture, sure. But the culture becomes its own sustaining, self-sustaining entity in a well-run brand like this. And I think people who worked in those kinds of companies know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not that, it's not that common. So, you know, if I were strategic, I would be looking for that kind of operating culture. And too often the skies and corporate strategy, and I've worked with these guys, they're looking at financial metrics. Or even worse, when they assess the team and the human capital, they're just focused on the founder. Like, you know, it's sort of like the, it's sort of like, would I do business with this personality assessment, amateur personality assessment? <laughs> so, as opposed to, do they understand how to sense what a strong culture is? And a strong culture is everybody is kicking ass when the founder's in a coma. So I would imagine that we have a lot of brands that are looking at Kind right now and trying to replicate that kind of that business. What do you think happens for the market overall? Do you think there's going to be a radically different market between the bigger and small players in the food space and these smaller emerging brands and the bigger ones that are looking to acquire them? Do you think that the Kind acquisition fundamentally changes that space or is this more the exception to the rule? Oh, it's definitely the exception to the rule. And that's why, you know, I, I, like I said, the ecosystem of, of Wall Street LPs, private equity firms, investment banks, and strategic corporate strategy folks. You know, that 
that has its own set of logics that is not going to be changed by this. Um, and so that deal flow will continue. And part of it, just to be really clear, I think some of your listeners understand that is, is that not, you know, without divulging specific cases, you know, strategics in consumer packaged goods have many different ways to make use of a nine-figure acquisition other than continuing to grow it. I mean, to be brutally cynical. And, and that's well understood by Wall Street folks. So that's that's going to still still happen. Um, you can monetize the valuation against your EPS and then kill it. You can keep, I mean, I know a company that literally would buy up small companies, mostly zombies, just so they would have something to sell really quickly to get cash. So, I mean, there's many reasons to bring these companies in. My So I don't think it's going to really change anything because I don't think CPG strategics have the luxury of being as idealistic as Dan Lebetsky. That's just not how they operate. Um, I still do think that they, I, I wish they would learn a few things, right? Which is stop trying to buy earlier. That was a really bad trend about five, seven years ago. Everyone was trying to buy earlier, right? Because they, there was all these, there was a flurry there for about three years of really high multiple deals off fairly small revenue companies, right? And it was starting to wig people out at big CPG companies. And they were like, well, maybe we should just, um, to avoid that high multiple, just let's buy earlier. Uh, and I think that was the exact opposite takeaway from that problem. <laughs> the real takeaway was slow down, you know, get out of the feeding frenzy and those multiples will collapse because the buyers will be gone and wait, wait till you have a billion dollar brand. And, and I think anybody who's done good market analytics, uh, whether at IRI, Nielsen, or at private consulting firms or at management consulting firms knows that it's the billion dollar plus brands in CPG that achieve a level of stability, generally speaking, that you just, it's unparalleled. Not only do they spend off a lot of cash, but they just, they're very hard to get rid of, right? But you can watch a $200 million brand disappear pretty quickly, <laughs> you know? So if you buy early and then screw it up, you don't get to the end game, right? Uh, I wish people would learn that if you were a little more patient and did things like minority investment, rather than trying to buy everything the minute it gets to 100 and 200 million in cash register sales, uh, you know, you might find that if you had up like 10 or 20 of those corporate venture capital investments, very thoughtfully picked, um, you know, that one of those is probably going to turn into the next Hot Pockets, the next Glesso, the next kind. But, you know, like I said, CPG companies that just, to them, that's a country club kind of corporate strategy idea. They just, they have too many other near-term ways to make money, so they don't tend to do that. Um, I think... The other issue is that I hope it causes corporate strategy folks at the big CPGs to really step back and say, all right, what was it about Dan's team that got it there? Because if you look at the food companies that have been purchased, food specifically has a bad track record in the United States, uh, that have been purchased and then it so-called integrated, it's been a really, really kind of mediocre result. And I've looked at most of those deals. And if and almost none of them continue to grow at a decent rate. They basically never get to a billion, even when there is enough addressable market. Uh, and and I know for a fact that that has to do with the, the way that big companies are structured in terms of their incentives to get managers to grow things, and the incentives that get you to keep EPS growing for I don't know, healthy choice, they don't work. They, they they don't work for you to get Zico or whatever brand you want to mention from you know, 200 million to a billion. They just don't work. While I'm on this topic, I'll share a blinded story from a 
C-suite conversation I had in the telepresence room. <laughs> it was really a biz dev conversation. Um, uh, but, you know, when you're selling at that level, you do a lot of free work, right? So that's how it goes. So we do the, we're in there and we're talking about sharing some thought leadership, I guess is what you would call it. And said CEO who shall go unnamed uh, interrupted me and said, well, I don't understand, James. Why is it so hard? I mean, I don't understand why it's so hard for a company with good talent to just bring these brands in that hundred million to keep them going. I mean, yeah, it's a, you're right. It's a different playbook, but so you just switch to the different playbook. Now, this is a really smart guy. I mean, I've, he's one of the few guys I have an enormous amount of respect for. But I think it showed how how much of an executive bubble he was in because his incentive structure. <laughs> he he when he's running the ship, he can imagine code switching, right? Oh, small brand playbook, massive brand playbook. Okay, I'll just switch, right? When you're the CEO, you have the luxury of thinking that that's an easy switch, and it isn't. It's not even remotely easy. Because your average general manager spent 20 years climbing to that role with one incentive structure, grow EPS or you're out, grow P EPS or you're out and you get a big Christmas bonus, <laughs> you know, um, and that's how they're all paid. But if you're going to get from a hundred million to 1 billion, like Dan did, guess what? You're not going to be maximizing profit as your number one operating principle. And he didn't, <laughs> I mean, you just cannot, you can't do it. It's the market's too competitive. To take a $100 million brand to a billion, like it's the 1950s. I'm sorry. I mean, it's just like, there's way too much choice. So you, you have to actually spend more money than big companies ever want to spend. And that, to me, is the epitome of what happened at Zika. They were never, Z, Z, Zika was never going to get the investment it needed. Not in a million years at Coca-Cola in North America. So it was set up to fail. So I think if you have an operating team which can, has the freedom then to not make profit maximization the pre key principle, that is the first thing you have to allow if you're going to get from 100 million to 1 billion independently, or at all, to be honest. If you look at who's done it, they've all been independent. So I think that touches upon one of the notes that you had in the article you wrote for the Food Institute Focus this week. And one of the things you said was, you know, and you alluded to it earlier, you know, you're talking about growing to that 100 million, but to get from that 100 million to 1 billion, you say that they really need to maintain their original teams and that that original team needs to be affected to begin with. And there's a whole different set of kind of operational culture ideas that need to be present. So I was hoping you could kind of explain these a little bit more and kind of touch upon those notes that you had in that focus article a little bit. Well, for one thing, uh, yeah, I think I can unpack some more that wasn't in the article. I use the word team because I think that's the that was the right word for the article to quickly gain understanding. But as I began when I was talking with you right now, it, it's actually operating culture. So when I said team in the article, it probably it might say a signal to some people that I was talking about yeah, individual human beings, and, and I'm not. I'm a social scientist. All individuals are replaceable. <laughs> including yours truly so you know I'm saying, just don't sitting, tell my I'm, boss yeah i'm sitting <laughs> right i'm sitting here in a thought leadership role that's just a social position right um you know someday i'll get old and i'll stop doing it and there'll be somebody else doing it so the it's the point is we're all playing roles right and so when i say team i'm talking about a cluster of roles in which the operating culture has created incentives and social interactional principles and accountability that does a couple things. One, people work to grow the business because the harder they work and the more successfully they work in whatever role they're in, and that's in that emerging brand, uh, the more money the more money they're going to make out of their ESOP, 
So they, they need to have stock, right? Second, um, even if they don't have stock, the people who are the ESOP shareholder employees have to create a culture in which people are paid really people are paid well who don't have the stock, but they're also part of a culture in which there is always this larger mission, and that larger mission is growing the brand, getting the excitement out there. And once you get to a hundred million dollars, Chris, you got a brand that's everywhere today. I mean, you've got an omni-channel brand, uh, and and so you. <laughs> It has badge status for younger people in their social world. Like you can't imagine what it's like to say what it was like to say five to seven years ago. Oh, I work for Kind Bar, right in the tri-state area. This was super cool, right? Um, it was sort of like saying I wrap burritos at Chipotle in 1998. That is the, that's an incentive, right? But you also have to have a culture in which you you have some leadership, and it's not just the founder. It's going to be other people on the team who who. Um, who create a positive, a dynamic in which that becomes the mission every day is getting the brand to grow, having fun, building the brand, rewarding competency, rewarding excellence, but more importantly, indirectly extracting incredible work ethic out of people from your company culture. I can't tell you how many early stage brands I meet where I don't see that work ethic. What are your expectations for 2021 in terms of growth companies like Kind getting acquired by larger CPG companies? Yeah, I think without mentioning specific businesses or targets, I would say a couple of things. So the big strategic CBG companies, um, the ones that were, you know, most of the portfolio was driven by brands where at-home use was a majority of the occasions driving revenue and usage. And most food companies fit into that profile specifically. They have watched their volume grow at a ridiculous amount. Basically, they just, they just acquired three years of volume growth or more in nine months. Um, now, some CapEx came off their balance sheet basically because they're like, oh my God, how do I make, some, how do I make this much Chef Boyardee? Um, so, <laughs> but I, most of them are through that and they've made a lot of money this year. That's my general perception. So I, I think things will look pretty good in 2021 for some bigger acquisitions. The real question is, and I, I don't have a sense of it because I'm not that close to it anymore. But is, is does Wall Street have an appetite for them, allowing them to do that? <laughs> um, are they really going to be rewarded because they've already made it? They've already grown their stock value in many cases, um, with the exception of the beverage giants who took a major hit pretty well. I mean, it's been a really good year, ironically. I, they're very good at not celebrating it in public. Kudos to them. <laughs> Should be super inappropriate. <laughs> but... <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> so that's good kudos to them because i think 30 years ago they would have and then gone what um so, so we've got a little more sensitive um but i think they i think we'll see things pick up a little bit what the big thing that i got my eye on is is how many brands because there's a bunch of skate ramp brands a couple i work with and others and i work with a unicorn or two i can't talk about who these people are going to burst through the nine figure th barrier very shortly, right? And so the, anyone in that situation, uh, whether they're direct-to-consumer or omni-channel, uh, I think the question will be uh, how do they want to think about a broader set of options to remain independent? Because it's, it's, uh, if, you, if, you, if you did what Kind did, which is you carved out a space and then you owned it and you owned a, what I call an attribute outcome set, um, and built a really strong trademark brand uh, 
you know, and you did it early enough, then you, you get, you get the luxury of having this thing that you're known for in the trade um, and with consumers that you can basically, you can continue to, as long as you continue to grow it and, and keep it relevant, you, you can basically decide when you want to monetize it. Right. I mean, that's the luxury that you get when you build a brand the way kind was built. If you do the pump and dump approach, you know, you're going, you, you have an unstable thing that actually was probably going to collapse if you didn't sell it. If you're following my logic. And we, I think we've seen that quietly. You know, I've seen people try to do pumping up. They didn't get a buyer or they didn't like it. And then it collapsed. So those stories don't get written about by you folks, <laughs> but they're out there. Believe me, there's a lot of people who've tried that RX bar approach and not everyone actually finds a buyer. Right. Um, so I think as people get to that hundred million dollar threshold in the next year, I think people are going to look at an example like kind and say, Hey, wait, why am I trying to sell? Um, I could make even more money if I keep doing this for five years or seven more years. Um, and, uh, then the question is, am I prepared to do that? Right. Cause I think, you know, Dan was a magic consultant. Let's be real. Okay. So he, I mean, forget his PR shark tank kind of nice face. He's not a fool, right? He's an extremely smart, highly analytical guy. Um, and uh, obviously has very strong leadership abilities. And so I think when you have that kind of person, it's going to be easier for them to build that operating culture that takes you well past $100 million. Um, I see companies out there like that. I, I definitely do. And I think if they feel like they have the kind sort of internal DNA, they should really pause and ask themselves, you know, should we just wait? Right? Because... Um, right now the CPG companies, they have cash on the books, but they're more likely to invest because they're cocky now. They're more likely to invest internally next year, right? On advertising and other stuff, because it's just too easy to make money that way. Um, getting involved in sort of more speculative acquisitions, yeah, they might, but I think they might just not. So I think that they may actually, people may find that staying independent, whether it's through an SPAC, which is super clever, um, or IPO. Or just doing what Dan did was collecting highly strategic minority investments from private equity firms, or even a strategic might be the best way to go. But here's the trick. Here's the thing is you've got to really be, you have to have an offering like kind that has that addressable market to get to a billion eventually. There are plenty of brands that can get to $50, $100 million, but they don't have a lot of potential to go past that because they start running out of consumers. So I think, uh, I think, you know, I think there's a broader array of ways to continue to grow other than just exiting at 100 and 200 million, I think this news this week really uh, reminds people to think a little more creatively about what your actual goals are. Do you want to make this a true cultural institution? And if you look at the brands that have gotten to a billion before selling, like Hot Pockets and Glasso and Vitamin Water, they're still with us, right? There are a lot of food acquisitions from my career that we no longer talk about because they didn't go anywhere once they got acquired. So I think that about wraps it up for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. Uh, James, where can our listeners go to learn more about your business, your book, your podcast, whatever else you're working on right now? Well, if the book interests you, uh, please go to Amazon.com, Ramping Your Brand. It's there. It'll pop up quickly. Um, and uh, I, if you're interested in my business, uh, it's PremiumGrowthSolutions.com. I do work exclusively with early stage founders and operators, but... There's lots of free content that other folks, um, including in the invest investment community, might like, including my near daily blog. Is that a thing? <laughs> a daily blog is a real big promise, Chris. <laughs> and don't ever say that. 
Startup Confidential is the name of my podcast. That really is a a truly gloves off series of monologues for me on best practices for for younger uh, early stage companies who are new to the industry. So it's it's a tough love show. So it sounds good. We'll definitely share the relevant links for the book, the podcast, the blog, and your website in the description of this episode. So I want to thank you again for coming on, James. Always a pleasure. And just remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank <music> you.